Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Mark Sisson is a New York Times bestselling author and the founder of one of my favorite brands, Primal Kitchen. Mark's also 67 years old and, by the way, looks amazing. And he's a true pioneer in the wellness world, so it's going to be great to hear his perspective on some of the latest trends we're seeing. And talk about all things intermittent fasting, which, by the way, Mark doesn't like that term as he prefers intermittent eating. I kind of like that, too. Mark's a great guy, and it's an honor to have him back on the show. One of the true pioneers in wellness, the one and only Mark Sisson. Mark, welcome back. Great to be back, Jason. Thanks for having me. So... I love the book and and you pack a punch and you start off talking about insulin. You say, quote, it's all about insulin. So we all know what insulin is, but let's talk about why it's all about insulin. You know, uh, interesting because this is my 10th book. And the first time I said it's all about insulin was in my first book. And I think I've repeated that many times over the years in different versions of books that I've come out with. And so this latest book is clearly an evolution of my thought process and my own education when it comes to ways of eating and how we can best optimize our health, particularly through through diet. One of the through lines now that I've, in retrospect, has become obvious to me is that really the holy grail of any choice in diet is to achieve metabolic flexibility. Now, metabolic flexibility basically means the ability of you, of your body, to obtain energy from whatever energy substrate is called upon or available at the time. So the body is great at burning carbohydrates. We know that. We, we eat carbs at every meal, must, many of us do over, over the years. And, uh, and the body, in many cases, is so good at burning carbs, it, it never gets to the point where it needs to burn fat. We fuel it so often throughout the day. And yet we have this ability to burn fat, whether it's the fat on our plate of food or the fat on our stored on our bodies, on our hips and thighs and belly. We have the ability to burn glucose in the bloodstream, glycogen in the muscles, ketones that our liver makes in the absence of glucose, and even some proteins, even some of the amino acids can be combusted. So this idea of metabolic flexibility is kind of become the new theme for me. And as it relates to insulin, and when I say it's all about insulin is a nutrient storage hormone. So typically our body secretes insulin, the pancreas secretes insulin in response to a meal that contains carbohydrates. And to a certain extent, some amino acids, some protein, but generally we're known to be very adept at secreting a lot of insulin in the presence of carbohydrates in our diet. Now what the insulin does is the insulin unlocks certain cells to allow carbohydrates in the form of glucose to enter those cells and be either combusted or stored as glycogen. It allows amino acids to get into those cells. It's a nutrient storage hormone. The good news is without it, we would die, and so we have to have some of this insulin. The bad news is that as a nutrient storage hormone, if we eat a lot of carbohydrates and raise insulin, and then we have a lot of excess calories in addition to the carbohydrates, much of the excess calorie gets converted into either stored glycogen or fat eventually. So we want to avoid the accumulation of fat over a lifetime as long as if we're not burning it, if we're not burning the fat off our bodies, we want to avoid accumulating it, which is how people get overweight and obese as they get older. We also want to understand that insulin locks fat into fat cells. So the more insulin we have in our bloodstream as a result of whatever it is we're choosing to eat, the more insulin we have, the more it locks the fat into the fat cells, and we can't take the fat out of storage and use it as fuel. So it's one of the great ironies 
of modern living is that we're so good at converting excess calories into fat, largely through the production of insulin, but we're also so bad at taking that stored energy and, and burning it off as was intended for millions of years of human evolution. This is how we survived the rigors of a hostile environment where there was long periods of time where there was no food. So insulin is an amazing hormone. Virtually every uh, multi-celled organism does, has some form of insulin that allows it to sequester, to, to store excess calories as stored energy with the understanding that, that when that energy is needed in the absence of more food, that the body will be able to take that energy out and burn it and you survive and, and you go about living a, a thriving a lifestyle. Does that explain it? In some yeah, way? so there, there are a couple of things I want to build off there. So you mentioned metabolic flexibility and something we've talked a lot about this show is metabolic health. And we all know how metabolically unhealthy we are here are in the U.S. 88% of us are metabolically unhealthy and you're more likely to have adverse effects, deep, be deeply affected by COVID. So it, it comes to the forefront with COVID. It, it, you need to be metabolically healthy. We need to be metabolically healthy and it's a process. So I want to bring it back to insulin, it feels like we're not talking about it. In some ways, I feel like we talk about it, but in other ways, I don't feel like insulin has, has sort of broke through, even though you talk about diabetes, the numbers are terrible. Why, one, like in your opinion, you go back to, you talk about the three big toxic foods, what's driving this and why don't you think it's more top of mind? It's a great question. Medicine to this day seems to be focused on fixing what's already broken and not preventing the break in the first place. And I've said for a long time, and some of my contemporaries, Ron Rosedale, a lot of it, Robert Lustig, Joe McCall, there's a lot of these guys who would say, the less sugar you burn in a lifetime, probably the better off you are in terms of overall health, in terms of reduction for cancer and heart disease, in terms of risk reduction for metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, which have their own host of concurrent issues. And as you said, COVID is a great example of the poor metabolic health of this country. In fact, some people would say that COVID, I would say COVID isn't a public health issue. It's a personal, it's a private health issue. If you have good metabolic health, you're going to be, you're going to survive this, you know, flu-like disease that's making the rounds. So it's become critical. So why aren't more people, more doctors, more of the medical community talking about the importance of managing insulin over a lifetime. And it's, again, I have to sort of say, well, perhaps it's the fact that they just didn't get that much training in medical school and doctors, anybody with an MD still has sort of first right of, of publication when some new study comes out or something. So guys like me who I don't have any, you know, true credentials like a PhD or an MD, I've only been writing and researching about it for years. But uh, when I say something like, like oh, the less sugar you burn in a lifetime, perhaps the better off you are, or it's all about insulin, or if we could just, and, and by the way, just to, I don't want to reduce this to too much of a simplification because there's, there's glucagon, the counter-regulatory hormone to insulin, there's leptin and ghrelin and testosterone and, and norepinephrine and epinephrine and all these other hormone-like neurotransmitters. These, all these things are talking to each other in the body. But the point is, if you can get, if you can do what it takes to get control of insulin, everything else seems to settle into place. And the hormone dysregulation that most people experience becomes now much more regulated and, and your energy levels go up, you maintain muscle mass, you don't store fat. In fact, you tend to burn it and tend to trend more toward an ideal body composition. And all these good things happen when you do what it takes to sort of control 
your body's production of insulin. And I think that's probably seen as way too much an oversimplification by much of the medical community who would say, wait a minute, we gotta look at, we gotta look at thyroid hormone, we gotta look at estrogen levels in women, and we have, well, yeah, you do, but I guarantee you that if you do what it takes to keep insulin under control, all these other things seem to fall into place. So we believe food is medicine and food can also, if we're eating the wrong foods, that could be problematic. You go as far, you, you, in the book, you have the big three toxic foods. So can you talk about the big three toxic foods? Yeah, so sugar, I, I think by now everyone sort of understands that sugar is, is problematic for most people. And to the extent that you can cut sugar out of your diet, whether it's the sugar in the beverages, the sweetened beverages that you drink, whether it's the sugar that you add to your cereal, whether it's the sugar you add to certain things that you're cooking, and of course, pies, cakes, candies, cookies. I think people sort of understand that sugar can be problematic. But then there's also the, the whole list of sort of refined grain products. Refined, and I would say sometimes whole grain products. So there's an entire category of these foods like grains that convert to glucose in the bloodstream pretty quickly. And why is that significant? Well, anything that converts to glucose causes a rise in insulin. So if you can cut down the intake of these, particularly these processed grains, because they convert to glucose pretty rapidly. I mean, I, I, I said in my first book, and it's to this day, your body really doesn't recognize the glucose that came from uh, a bowl of Skittles over the glucose that came from a slice of bread. The glucose in your bloodstream is the glucose in your bloodstream. So anything you could do to sort of cut that down. So, so getting rid of, to, re, to reiterate, the sugars, uh, the refined grains, and then ultimately what we call the industrial seed oils. And in the past five years, it's really been interesting to see the number of medical professionals start to understand how insidious the intake of industrial seed oils can be and how dangerous they, they might even be more dangerous than the sugars. And what we're talking about here is soybean oil, corn oil, canola oil, in many cases, safflower and sunflower oil. These are oils that are highly processed. They don't occur in, in quantity in nature versus, for instance, getting oil from a coconut or getting oil from an olive or getting oil from an avocado, which you just get by virtue of, of pressing that fruit. So these industrial seed oils have become very pervasive and ubiquitous within our diet. And it's, it's postulated that many of our cells will incorporate these sort of altered polyunsaturated fatty acids, these PUFAs that we call them, into the membrane, for instance. And then they would take a space on the membrane that would be a functioning part of the membrane, but now doesn't work as well because of the nature of this artificial oil that we've introduced. These industrial seed oils don't combust that well. So we don't like take them in and, and burn them readily. They have to either go through a transformation or they become incorporated into the cells. I don't know if you've had Kate Shanahan on your show, but Kate's a, a one who is very down on, on these industrial seed oils. And she and I have had you know many a conversation about how what it's going to take to convince the consumer how bad these things are for them. And also to read the labels and go, oh my God, this thing that I thought was natural and healthy and was a fake butter, or a healthy salad dressing contains these very oils you're talking about. And when I thought I was making my salad taste a little bit better and a little bit more healthy because the label on the dressing said better for you, in fact, it wasn't. So, so these, I, I think anybody who wants to sort of take step one to achieving better health, uh, whether it's metabolic flexibility or losing weight or having more energy or building muscle, getting rid of those big three 
would, will get you 80% of the way of where you need to be. So a couple of comments. We have had Kate Shanahan, very, very strong opinion on, on vegetable oil. She goes as far as she has her hateful eight. And I remember after that episode, I, I'm a pretty healthy guy. I read labels. I started to really look and you start to really go around the grocery aisle and wow, they're everywhere. The seed oils are everywhere. Yeah. And it, 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 I was blown away. And I do agree. I am hearing from more and more people who are starting to wake up. People who aren't, who I wouldn't classify as hardcore health and wellness thought leaders are waking up to the problem of seed oils. And it's a bigger problem. I didn't read the, the article, but today I picked up the Wall Street Journal, but I saw, I think it was corn and soybean demand is like through the roof. And that's, it's, it's a whole other problem in terms of what our government is subsidizing and essentially paying farmers to produce, and we're paying farmers to produce crap. And so it's a huge yeah. problem. It's a consumer problem, but it's also a government problem. And I don't know if you have a thought there, but I'm just like, this is a No, mess. I do. I mean, it's frustrating as hell, but it, it, it makes me feel like you and I have created this elite club of people who get it, right? Who people who are under, starting to understand how we've been sold a bill of goods. And I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, and I think people are too greedy at the top to organize into a cabal, you know, and, and create all this, <laughs> all this stuff. I just think that big food has always wanted, they've always recognized that crunchy, salty, fatty, sweet appeals to, the, to our basic primal instincts. And so they've created these foods that appeal to that nature, and they're what we call hyperpalatable foods using these ingredients, which, by the way, these ingredients are really inexpensive. That's one of the reasons that you're able to buy food in this country so cheaply is because quality ingredients are not only hard to come by, they're extremely expensive. We use avocado oil in our salad dressings. It costs 20 times as much, not 20% more, but 20 times as much as some of the commoditized seed oils that most companies use. So when a company is building foods and trying to serve 50,000 store outlets across the country with a relatively inexpensive product and they're going to compete on price, these are the choices they make. And it doesn't make them good or bad people, but it, what it does is it makes it incumbent upon you and me and, and our contemporaries in this health space to educate people and say, look, read the label. And like you and I just talked offline about the restaurants in Miami, some of the best restaurants in Miami, which serve amazing meals. But you know, you go ask them what the what the salad dressing is made out of, or what that special sauce on on the bass was, or the or the halibut, and turns out it's largely a blend of soybean oil, corn oil, canola oil, and others. And you've taken what would otherwise be a beautiful piece of fish or a beautiful collection of vegetables in a salad, and you've literally, and I hate to put it these terms, you've literally ruined it. You've literally, you're better off not eating the salad than eating a, a, a bunch of healthy greens with 600 calories of highly processed industrial seed oils on them. So I, I like you, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but I am optimistic with regards to consumer brands and big CPG. I'll use you as an example, and you sold your company to, to Kraft, and, and Kraft wouldn't buy by uh, Primal Kitchen if, if they didn't think there was an opportunity to make a lot of money. And, you know, the other example, Hue Chocolate. We talk about a really solid brand, really done right. Both of your brands, they sell to Mondelez. Yep. The biggest stacking conglomerate in the world. So you've got Kraft and Mondelez, yep. 
And if I think of brands in the CPG, better for you, quote unquote, better for you brands in the CPG place, like CPG space, I would argue your brands, Hue and Primal, like are two of the cleanest labels out there and you were acquired by a pretty big company. So like I'm encouraged, they wouldn't do that because you guys are nice guys and you have a... <laughs> well, yeah, but I'll go you one better. They also wouldn't do it to then adulterate us, yes. you know, and then, and then cheapen what we do. I mean, I think that was the fear that, that's the fear that any supporter of an up and coming healthy brand has when that brand sells to a larger company is, oh, they're going to ruin it. They're going to, they're going to start to introduce inex more inexpensive ingredients. And no, in fact, Kraft Heinz, when they acquired us, they basically said, we love what you guys are doing. We realize it's the way of the future. We want to learn from you. And so it's, it's been over two years now and they have left us alone. They've said, you just go do what you do. We're going to watch. We're going to support you. We're going to help you with, with uh, budgets and with distribution, but you guys keep doing what you're doing because it's fantastic and it is leading the way. And that, like, I feel so good about having been acquired by Kraft Heinz. Those guys, they get it. And, uh, and now they're starting to, and I, I think the other thing you need to understand about all these top brands like Mondelez you just, and Kraft Heinz is they're not really brands themselves. They're a collection of, they're a portfolio of brands. So they're like 75 or 100 iconic brands under Kraft Heinz. Oscar Mayer, Velveeta, Kool-Aid, Tang, Crystal Light, Folger. I mean, all of these different brands that you've come to appreciate over the years, each one of which is sort of in a separate thing. So it doesn't represent some collective thought about the brand. Each of these food companies sort of stands or falls on its own. So when they acquired us, they were like, Again, we understand this is where the consumer is headed. We think it's it's a major learning opportunity. And so I'm encouraged by the acquisition of us and by Hugh Kitchen and by some of my contemporaries. Yes, so am I. The government piece, we'll see. But I do think ultimately, look, every great movement I always say is comes from the ground up and not the top down. And there's a groundswell, there's a demand. People want better Well, products. it's not going back. It's not yeah. going the other direction, right? Agreed. So, so much of the book, you know, the, the book is about fasting. I don't want to, it's more than fasting, but a big chunk of the book is about intermittent fasting. And we've had a lot of guests on here. Intermittent fasting is very relevant, very timely. I'm curious, you've been at this for a while and you've got the perspective that many don't have. I'm curious, what's changed in terms of intermittent fasting maybe a couple of years ago to, to where it is today. And it, it seems like science is catching up here. We talked about science and the medical community being slow in the beginning, but in terms of fasting, I feel like that there's starting to maybe get it, if you will. Uh, what's changed? Well, I think the original research on fasting was taking most of their co cohorts were coming from either a standard American diet or certainly a government sort of based food pyramid six to 11 servings of grains a day. So it was a, it was a, a highly carbohydrate-based diet. And from there, the subjects went into some sort of fasting mode. And the results that, that were obtained from that were quite impressive. But there was the issue of how difficult it was for somebody who was carb-dependent, for instance, to now go onto a fast, whether it was a 24-hour fast or a 48-hour fast or 72-hour fast. And yet, the results were pretty compelling. About five or, well, maybe 10 years ago, I started writing about the way in which to, to go long periods of time without eating food 
was to become fat adapted so that you didn't go through that sort of flu-like symptoms, that headachey, groggy feeling that people who are otherwise carbohydrate dependent seem to have to encounter on their way to a, 20, a 24 hour fast or a 48 hour fast. So there was a stair stepping into it where if you became fat adapted and, and in many cases keto adapted, now when you decided to skip a meal or two meals or two days of eating or seven days of eating, now it was much more comfortable and now the results seem to accelerate because you really want to get to the point where you're you're burning, you're not only burning off your own stored body fat, but you're entering a process of autophagy where the cells repair themselves. Uh, some senescent cells just decide to give up the ghost. DNA gets repaired. A, a lot of good things happen. So over the last five years, the idea of fasting has kind of shifted, I think, to the idea more of a compressed eating window. And the, the reason for the name, two meals a day, was as much as I'm a fan of fasting, I don't do multi-day fasts. My wife does two seven-day fasts, water-only fasts a year, and she loves it. I'm, I like food too much, so I can't, I don't, and I don't feel compelled to, because there's nothing I'm trying to address. I'm, I, I don't want to lose muscle mass, and, and I feel pretty healthy otherwise. So, but the point is that the idea of fasting has now sort of shifted from the concept of, oh my God, I'm going to suffer and struggle while I don't eat for a couple of meals or a couple of days to all the good stuff happens to the body when you're not eating. And if I can make that window of time that I'm not eating a, a standardized 18 hours every day, then I'm getting the benefits of these three and four day fasts, but I'm getting them in micro doses every single day. So I talk about intermittent eating instead of intermittent fasting. I don't even I don't really even like the term fasting anymore. I like the notion that all the good stuff happens when you're not eating and the term intermittent eating because it calls upon metabolic flexibility to 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 get you to the point where hunger and appetite and cravings no longer run your life. So the idea behind two meals a day was that's pretty much a starting point. Like if you can get to the point where you only eat two meals a day, then from there, if you decide, hey, I could probably get by on one meal a day, that'd be great. Or I think I can do a 36 hour fast, no problem, because I'm metabolically flexible and I've gone these long periods of time without eating. So I think the idea of fasting has kind of shifted, at least in my purview, from these occasional multi-day fasts, once a month, three times a year, whatever, to literally a regular program of a mini fast every day based on your compressed eating window and then also based on other aspects of your life because a mini fast a, a a compressed eating window where you say get up in the morning and you have a cup of coffee or a cup of tea or whatever and then you don't eat until 1:30 or 2 if you, you work out during that fasted period you're sort of accelerating the process of believe it or not of repair and of fat burning and of metabolic flexibility and of upregulating all the enzyme systems that burn fat and of what we call mitochondrial biogenesis so you can accomplish these this continuous progression toward metabolic flexibility with a compressed eating window and hence the two meals a day i love intermittent eating if you think about it intermittent fasting it's operating from in terms of mindset operating from a yeah. place of scarcity versus a place of abundance and it's just a, that yeah. subtle it's it, something else i i you talk about is it a cheat or is it a treat and just think about that mentally yeah. 
So I, yeah. I, I love it. So you mentioned you, you, you like food too much. I know you also like wine. And so that's where I'm going to yes. go next. You, you have this great chapter in the book. I love the title, Strategies to Minimize the Adverse Effects of Alcohol. So please tell us more, mm. Mark. Well, there's, uh, all these life decisions we make exist on a spectrum from good to bad or pleasurable to painful. And, and these choices also have context. So like I drink my wine uh, with dinner and in my, because dinner's my favorite meal of the day, it's celebratory, takes on a significance of like the days, the, 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 the work of the day is done and I'm sitting down and enjoying this, as I say many times in my books and always in, in these podcasts, I, I want every bite of food I eat to be enjoyable. Well, I want every meal to be enjoyable. So for me, wine creates that sort of thing. So for me, the context of mitigating the, the, the negative effects of wine, say in terms of any sort of taking the edge off and getting, I, I never get drunk. I'll say that I never get drunk. I've been drinking alcohol for, since I was 18. So almost 50 years. My wife's never seen me drunk. My kids have never seen me drunk. It's like, I just, I know where the edge is. And it's made easier to avoid that process if you consume alcohol with food. On the other hand, some of the strategies might involve eating, drinking alcohol without food because you want to burn that off and you want, you, you want the alcohol burns first when you're trying to lose weight. So you might, you might elect to have some tequila, straight tequila or, or some a healthy, low sugar, no sugar wine by itself an hour or two before consuming a meal. If your intent is to start to burn off uh, more fat, you know, the, uh, time-tested, age-old method of if you've had too much to drink, you know, start to drink water toward the end of the evening and, and titrate the alcohol content down. It may be that if, if you've had one sugary drink too much, you bang off 50 air squats right there and you burn <laughs> off the glucose. So there are all sorts of you know, little strategies. But again, it, it's not like, like you have to go, oh, what did Mark say about uh, if I drink a sugary drink with a, with a a parasol on it versus no, I want to, I want people to develop an intuitive sense of like, I'm going to make a choice right now. I'm not going to beat myself up over whether the choice was good or bad. If it turns out it didn't serve me that well, then what's my next move. Right. And if, and so the context is sort of everything when it comes to these choices that we're making context, you're at a, you're at uh, your, your child's fifth birthday party and your keto for that week. Are you not going to have a piece of cake? I mean, life is worth living. That's the whole reason I do this is because I want to enjoy life, not because I want to adhere to some dogmatic principle. At the end of the day, everything I write about is contemplated to improve the quality of life, full stop, to enjoy life. I just happen to have chosen uh, metabolic flexibility because it gives me more energy, because I'm not worried about how I look naked. I have more, I have more productivity when I'm working. So all these things still come to my bottom line, which is I enjoy my life more because of the choices I make in terms of diet and sleep and sun exposure and all these other things. But at the, you know, if you, if you distill all of this down to what is it you're trying to get, I just want to feel good. I just want to be happy. I just want to enjoy life. So you do feel good. You do enjoy life. You're 67 years old. You're doing, I'm 46. I said to you before the show, I'm like, heck, I, I want to, I want to look like, look as good as Mark and feel as good as Mark. So I am curious, again, I value perspective and you do have the perspective of being in this space for a very long time. I am curious, what are the practices that have had the biggest impact? And on the flip side, 
look, there's been a lot of bad science. There's been fads, trends, come and go. What, I'd say maybe not regrets, but what are some of the things you've seen where you said, hey, this has maybe been promising or tried it out and just didn't do it for you, maybe had a negative impact? Well, my whole life has been about trying to do the right thing and then finding out sometimes too late that what I thought was the right thing after all the research I did and all of the conventional wisdom that I drudged up was in fact perhaps the wrong thing. But that's how we learn. So I come to where I am today, having been an endurance athlete. I was a marathoner in the 70s. I was a triathlete, Ironman triathlete in the 80s. So I did all the miles. I put in all the miles. I probably, da I definitely damaged my heart. I'm going to say I ruined it, but I damaged my heart with all the hard training I did for 30 years. I would take some of that back. I, you know, I ate far too many carbs. And as a result of the notion that a runner, anybody who's doing that amount of training can burn anything, the furnace will burn anything, right? I had a highly inflammatory diet, so I had arthritis and tendonitis and I had all these injuries that I should not have had, which I thought at the time were a result of overtraining, but it turns out were just the result of overtraining in conjunction with a highly inflammatory diet. Now, you say, well, would you take that back? Would you do it over again? Well, probably not because the, the injuries forced me to retire and to reflect back on what I'd done wrong and maybe how I could shift in for myself in the future, maybe how I could, how I could help somebody else not make the same mistakes that I made. And so the mistakes that I made ultimately got me to where I am today. And I've got some injuries that I've got. I, I tore my uh, lat when I was 35 years old on the still rings, doing inappropriately doing gymnastics because I thought I could at 35, I thought I could do what I was, what I had done when I was 17 or 18. I tore my patellar tendon playing ultimate frisbee because I was going up against a 20-something and and did a Superman dive to try and catch a, a frisbee, and I was 58 years old or whatever when that happened. So, I mean, so, I don't really have like uh, one single thing. I mean, I, I hang out with young people as you might imagine, and that's one of the things I learned early on was that you, I, I like energy and I like to hang out with young, energetic people. So. As you get older, and particularly me, most of the people my age are like, Jesus, I don't want to hang around with them. They're like, they're cantankerous and they're pissed off and they're in pain all the time and they're not and they're out of shape and they look like shit. And they, so I, I hang around young people. But by the same token, I was thinking about this the other day. I, I still play ultimate frisbee, right? And, and I'm going to be 68 in July. And I'm on a pitch, a frisbee pitch in a football field under the lights playing with some of the best frisbee players on the East Coast. These are ex-national team players from Venezuela and Argentina, and they're 20 and 30-something. And I'm sprinting down the field trying to defend a, a long throw or trying to get open to catch one myself. And there's a point at which you go, all right, it's become a novelty. Now I'm like, now I'm like it's like a parlor trick that I show up every week. Like when, like what day does it become inappropriate for me to show up and go, okay, I'm sort of, I'm finished with that. But it was the mindset that got me to this point in the first place. It kept me going instead of retiring from say ultimate at, at 50 years old or 55 years old. Um, so I would say just staying as active as I can. My, my biggest thing right now is my forms of activity are largely centered around play. So today I went for a, a stand-up paddle, hour and 15-minute stand-up paddle. And I paddled pretty hard the whole way. But it was on a beautiful like lagoon and up some inland waterways in, in Miami. I saw three manatee today, which is kind of a, a, a spectacle in and of itself. Got a great workout, got some vitamin D, came back, felt like I'd done something. Paddling for me doesn't get my heart rate up too high, and yet it, it's all full-body exercise. Um, I go fat biking on the beach, and my wife, who's very fit, but she can't keep up with me on the fat bike, so 
motorized fat bike, a pedal assist kind of motor. And we ride in the deep sand, like five miles up the beach and five miles back. And it, it's an amazing workout. It's a lot of fun. It's a big challenge. So I, and I play ultimate, as I say, and I have an electric foil uh, board that's sort of akin to snowboarding on the water. And I try to have fun now. That's the main thing for anything that I do that's activity. I don't like the drudgery of calling it a workout anymore. For me, it's like I'm going to go play. And what game am I going to play today? Or what? how am I going to have fun today with my movement patterns? Well, I, I think it's an important point. So many people come to our world, the wellness world. You know, something happened. They, they're shunned by conventional medicine. They maybe see a functional medicine doctor. Maybe they read your book. They make some changes in their life. All of a sudden, they feel great. And it becomes an obsession for better or for worse. And I get it. I, we've all been there. I've been there at a certain point. And then there's a fine line between obsession and, and this is my struggle with wearables. I got a lot of wearables on now. I have fun with them. I think they're very interesting. You mentioned glucose earlier. I had levels on the other week. I learned a lot. It was fascinating. Fascinating. Like you talked about impact on blood, you know, on glucose. Fascinating. But we're at this interesting point where we have access to a lot of data. We're very passionate, but at the same time, you don't want to lose the fun. You don't want to lose the joy because if that goes, I would argue, I don't know if there's science to prove it, but you're probably negating some of the benefits of all the good stuff you're doing. If it becomes a chore and work, and it's this like thing that is, you become too rigid about it. And so I love this idea of making a part of lifestyle, having fun, bring a little bit of joy and it becomes too much, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, well, I mean, in my case, I spent 30 years as an endurance athlete, and it was like a little late in the game that I realized it was like beating my head against the wall. As an endurance athlete, like there's no point where you really, ever really say, wow, this is fun. This is fun getting my ass kicked running up a, a hill on a 20-mile run, or particularly in races. All you're doing is managing discomfort. And the guy who wins the race that day is the one who manages his discomfort so well that everyone else around him crumbles. I mean, that's the nature, that's the nature of endurance competition. And that's pretty freaking sad, if you ask me. So, so I, I, I came to that realization uh, late in my endurance career, but it's been my salvation ever since. A point about the wearables. And I want to ask you, first of all, like, so now you've had the levels uh, device for two, two or three weeks. Have you learned anything from it? It's been interesting. My wife and I both did it. I'm pretty healthy anyway. So like, yeah, yeah I know if I, I'm an 80-20 guy. So on the weekends, I more or less will have at it. And so I had a little fun on the weekends and say, all right, let's, let's have the French fries. Let's go for the cake. Let's see how high we can get this thing. And then yeah. during the week, I'm pretty healthy. I'm essentially a two meal a day guy anyway. Like perfect. Nine, the double yeah. scores you, I'd be like a nine out of 10 every day and then it was like all right oh wow well, wow i got a two out of ten for those of you listening to rate you from like zero to ten i'm like wow i got this pretty and i would see the double spike when i'd have ultra processed food i had it a, one one evening i had a impossible burger and fries and they had frozen margaritas i'm like let's go for two let's do this let's see what we can do with the and sure yeah. enough this massive double spike i got to like 160. Yes, yeah. That's, that's pretty and impressive. By the way, that's still that's still fairly healthy, flexible person who goes off the wagon for one day, yeah. and that's your body responding perfectly. And so it was interesting too for my wife Colleen. Hers went up a little, and we're both like we're both very healthy. Hers went up a little bit on a relatively healthy meal. It was like some vegetables and I think some quinoa. I forget what it was. It was relatively healthy. 
And then like if she has a Justin's or like a peanut butter cup during as a snack, a healthy, it's actually yep. great for her blood sugar. I'm like, this is amazing. Yep. So basically like you're justifying processed chocolate and, and peanut butter, which we yep. can debate if that's good or bad, but like zero, it, it had like a great score. So, no, but that's the, but it, it's interesting, and, and I, I applaud what the levels guys are doing. I talk to them once in a while. My only thing is, I'm not a big fan of wearables because I don't. I, I, first of all, I think much of the data you get is wrong in some of the wearables. I like I some of the sleep trackers and things like that would tell me I get zero deep sleep. And I got my aura uh, yeah, and well, my whoop, so I compare both. Yeah, of no, them. no. And I, again, I, I don't want to pick on any one particular company, but when Fitbit tells me that well, I'm finishing dinner at 9.30 at night at a restaurant and I still owe 5,000 steps for the day and I can't walk home with my friends or my wife because I got to, or can't cab home, I, I, I can't Uber home, I have, to, I have to walk home and then around the block six times. I mean, all these things become too OCD for a lot of people. And the data becomes the driver of a lifestyle in which you have to appease the data. You have to make the data happy, right? And so with a wearable that's looking at glucose, what, what am I trying to do? Am I, do I want to feel good or do I want to make my wearable feel good because I scored a nine instead of a two? And I'm back to my original in, intention when I started Mark's Daily Apple in 2006 was I want to educate people about the way the, the body works in a manner that allows them to make decisions intuitively, to make choices intuitively about their lives. Not that I have the right way or the only way or the best way. I have a way. And my way is based on good research and good science. And if you have these goals, you want to lose weight, you have more energy, you want to build muscle mass, you want to sleep better, you want a better sex, you want to make more money. I mean, all these things, I can help you achieve those. I have a template that you can use. But at the end of the day, I want you to be intuitive about it. I, I don't want you to read my book and then go back and go, oh, shit, what would Mark say about this? Or let me look at, let me see if there's a thing in the index about, about eating a cheesecake at one o'clock in the morning on the way home from a concert. Right. It's like I want people to just go. I, I made the choice. I'm OK with it. I'm not going to beat myself up. I'm going to move on to the next thing. Or I don't want people to go, well, I'm not going to do that because that would ruin my my my, my six day streak or whatever. Well, maybe that's going to work for you. But I want you to be intuitive and I want you to understand that at the end of the day, all that matters is how do you look, feel and perform. Most importantly, how do you feel, right? And if you feel good, then I don't care if you're keto or non-keto. I don't care if you're a vegan or meat eater. I don't care if you're overweight or under. If you feel good, I'm not going to argue with any of that. If you truly feel good about your life and you're enjoying life, that's all I want for you at the end of the day. Well said. Another point I'll, I'll bring up, which I love, and it's uh, personally, the lines very much with me. JFW in the book, just <laughs> effing walk. L let's talk about the power of walking. Well, the, well, the body is designed uh, to be mobile throughout the day. And not 100% all the time throughout the day, but as we evolved starting with homo whatever two and a half million years ago we as upright mobile creatures walking was the main form of not just locomotion but walking and standing yes there was some squatting and sitting and lying down but most of the time we were putting this body this bilaterally symmetrical body that's built more like a segue than anything else like how is it that we don't fall over we're standing on two feet <laughs> it blows my mind that we have this 
We are basically a segue. Um, you buy me a, a joke. So for I'm six foot seven. You've met me. My listeners know that. And, and I have a size 15 shoe. And, every, and I remember I'd go into a shoe store and they'd be like, holy cow, size 15. I'd be like, any smaller, I tip over, guys. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, so anyway, mobility. Look, two things really define quality of life as we get older. Mobility and access to memory and, and thought. So we know a lot about the Alzheimer's part of that equation. You don't want to go down that route. You want to be present. You want to be communicative with people around you in your 80s and 90s. You want to be sharp and responsive. But also you want to be mobile. You don't want to be bedridden or in a wheelchair or, or consigned to a couch all day long. You want to be mobile. And the way to mobility doesn't mean you have to go out and run marathons. It just means you got to move your body through space. And walking is the easiest way to prompt this genetic recipe that we all have into lubricating the joints and building up the connective tissue and and building up bone density and maintaining a range of motion so walking is just the easiest and at the end of the day probably the most effective thing we can do of all the choices we can make in 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 the form of exercise so just freaking walk is like if you could just maintain that mantra and if we sort of invoke it a lot in this book, two meals a day, because as you're getting to the point where you're skipping breakfast or you're skipping at least one meal and you think that you're hungry, you're not really hungry. This is your brain telling you it's time to eat because I always used to eat at this time. One of the, one of the strategies is just go for a walk, go for a 10 or 15 minute walk and get the, get literally get the juices flowing, get the blood flowing, start to stimulate uh, the production of these, uh, taking fat out of storage and combusting it as fuel to keep you moving and to generate energy throughout your body. Yeah, walking is the second most overlooked aspect of health behind behind sleep probably, but if you get your sleep right and you get your walking right, again, you're so close to being where you need to be. 100% agreed. So in closing, we talked about wearables, we've talked about there's been a lot of change in the wellness world and I'm curious, where, where do you think we're going? What is the future? What do you think we're going to be talking about a year from now? What's interesting to, to you? Well, I mean, I, I would say I, I'm really anxious to see what the long-term effects of, of this COVID quarantine sequestration will be a year from now. Will people go back to the community that is their local gym, or will they continue to confine themselves to their homes with their Peloton tonal hydro mirror workouts. So that's going to be interesting to see how that, what comes out of that. I have a really bad feeling about fake meat. And so the, this movement toward fake meat, impossible and, and beyond, and some of the lab grown meat is exactly the wrong direction. I think we should be heading in like exactly the wrong direction in, in, on, in every metric possible. So I'm a huge fan of regenerative agriculture. I think that's the only way we feed the world is by grazing ruminant beasts. So I'm, but I, but that's where I want it to go. But I don't know that's where it's going to go. I fear that it's headed that we're headed down uh, more of a, a veganist plant based marketing ploy more than anything. I mean, plant based has now become the, the biggest food marketing ploy around and any company that doesn't have an animal product in it is calling it plant based, whether or not it's, you know, truly that sort of a food. So we'll see what, what happens there. I, I have my own ideas about what we need to do to shift that direction, but I do not like that direction. Yeah, it's a tough one. I'll share my thoughts briefly. So with regards to to gyms and, and home fitness, my, my take is working out at home is fantastic if you're 
really busy and have little kids and can't get and if the gym was sliding for you because of work you got to commute and so forth i don't know if those people are going back if i've got the time or if i'm single or if i don't have a fan like i'm going back i'm there i want to get out and, and i think pe people desperately i think what we've learned during COVID is one there was a loneliness epidemic going into this and now it's just been exacerbated and uh, there's a crazy statistic i want to say he is an md at cigna where loneliness is equated with smoking 15 cigarettes a day, mm -hmm. which is insane. And there's a loneliness yeah. epidemic and there's a mental health of it yeah. and the numbers. And I think people want back in. Will we ever go back all in to the office five days a week or whatever? Who knows? I think it'll be a hybrid, but people need people. And, and, and people not being around people is actually bad for immune system too. There's a lot of data right. there. So I, th I think we're going back with regards to the fake meat. I, I think it's a great alternative if you treat it as uh, vegan junk food and you don't want to <laughs> eat. And, and if you've, you're philosophically opposed to eating meat or you can't eat meat for health yeah. reasons, and you want to taste If you have heart disease and yeah. you, you want to have a taste of a burger every month or so, fantastic. But agreed, it, it's problematic. You know, Oatly's going public. The number two ingredient is rapeseed oil. It's canola oil. It's not healthy. They've got some products. Yeah. Some of their SKUs are actually decent but like their main skew yeah, is yeah. problematic at a five billion dollar valuation it, by the way you know i talked to our, our mutual <laughs> friend jason carp about that he's got a very strong opinion which i agree with <laughs> but it's interesting i i think going back to to regenerative ag and farming i had it hasn't aired yet for the listeners it may it may have aired but i had mark Bittman on here there's a whole book about it's called animal vegetable junk and it's the problem with the food yeah. system and the farm system and the canola and yeah. soybeans. So I, I think, look, to your point, I think I, I'm an optimist. I'm hopeful. I think the government needs to get its act together. And I think if enough consumers demand better food, a more just food system, too, because the government decides mm -hmm. what's cheap, what's affordable. Right. right. So right. at any rate, it's an interesting time to be in wellness, although I am a hope guy. I'm an optimist. Well, I am, too. I am too. But again, I would say that you and I share sort of a, a commonality among many's, many others that, you know, we have a club that we've put together where we, we have people who like what we say and, and agree with us. And uh, so, you know, they're not going to backslide. I guarantee you. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. <laughs> I, I think, uh, look, I'm optimistic. I, I, I do think our goal, I know your goal has always been not just preach the choir, build a bigger church. I think the church is getting bigger. Still have some work to do, but at any rate, Mark, love the book. Thank you for all that you do. Always a pleasure. Two meals a day. Let's do it. Thanks, man. Great hanging out. Food plays a huge role in our overall health. And now's your chance to learn from the best in the world in our Functional Nutrition Coaching Program, which gives you access to 19 of the world's top doctors and health coaching experts, nearly 30 hours of instruction. These experts will give you such a great foundation in functional nutrition, they're going to teach you how to brand, market, and expand your wellness business. Now's the time to take your passion and knowledge to the next level. Become the master of your own wellness journey. Enroll in our Functional Nutrition Coaching Program today. Go to mindbuddygreen.com slash coaching and enter code SISSEN300 to get $300 off.